Welcome to Cast Conversations, a monthly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek, and I'm an assistant executive director at the Connecticut Association of Schools. It's my pleasure to welcome Renata Bowers, the author of the award-winning Free to Be Children's Books series. Renata created Free to Be to encourage children to dream big and believe they, too, are free to be their own one-of-a-kind, very important story. Renata co-founded Free to Be LLC with her friend Paula LaJoy to provide a growing line of books, products, and services specifically created to encourage and inspire the story within. Together, they are the founders of The Story Barn, where every story matters. The Story Barn is located in Summers, Connecticut, and hosts a variety of creative activities for people of all ages to enjoy and explore the one-of-a-kind Free to Be story within. Welcome, Renata. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm in very good company. (laughs) Great. And along with Renata are two elementary principals from the Shelton School District to talk about how they're using the Free to Be books, the Free to Be Whole Child Toolkit, and other curricular materials to promote social-emotional learning at their schools. It's my pleasure to welcome Shelton Principals Amy Yost of Sunnyside Elementary School and Andrea DiUdo, Principal of Long Hill School. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. It's a great great topic to talk about. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun today, so glad you're all here. Fun is good. Yes, fun <laughs> is always good. So Renata, let's start with you. I'd like to be, begin here that I know that you love everything about your work and that the Story Barn is about encouraging children, actually everyone of any age, that they're free to be the unique and important story that they carry inside. Share with us your story, who you are, your background, and your journey to becoming an author. Thank you. I like to say that I'm kind of the poster child for what I do. I was, ironically, never really a very strong student academically. So the reason that, you know, fast forward 10 years into my work and the social emotional is starting to take hold, it's deeply personal for me. Because where I feel I excelled as a child and even today is more social emotional than intellectual. Um, And we'll get into that when we talk about whole child. So the work that I do about encouraging the child, uh, his or her unique story within really is personal for me because I believe that the reason I'm doing the work I'm doing today is because people believed me here based on their ability to see what my gifts were. I didn't have confidence in school as a student. I wasn't lacking, but I was just kind of riding it out. But it was teachers along the way who would authenticate my ability to write and who kind of nudged me in directions of reading and writing that eventually, you know, kind of wound its way around into what I'm doing now. So the thing that I find amazing is that the work that I'm doing right now fulfills every single gift I have. And that to me, you know, I had people who believed me into this place. So now I'm blessed with work that is set up to encourage children and actually all ages believing them into their own unique story. How wonderful. I mean, for anybody to be able to say that about your life. That's, so that's, that's yeah, great I to am hear. blessed. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, so people always want to know, how did you get the ideas and the inspiration to create Free to Be in the first place, and where and how do you continue to get your ideas and inspiration? Well, I must start by claiming that Free to Be was not my idea. (laughs) Okay. Um, Where I've always gotten ideas and and inspiration is from watching children. And to that point, I was writing, 
I don't know, back in the 90s, I was writing really funny kid stuff just for fun. And I would send it off to my friend who had small children up in Wisconsin. I had gotten married, lived in Wisconsin, gotten married, moved to Houston, and was homesick, very, very homesick. So I was writing kid stuff, sending it back to my friend in Wisconsin. So she would read it to her small children, and then we'd get on the phone, and we would laugh. And then I would want to write more, because it was, it was a connection for me. Mm-hmm. And so she's actually that friend, Anne, is the one who came up with the idea of writing a story about a girl whose name is Free to Be. And that was all the way back in 1995, four, somewhere, 94, I think. So that really, I always have to attribute to Anne. But beyond that, I, I get my ideas and inspiration really kind of two places. It's always watching children. But the other thing is I'm kind of wired. It, it's, it might sound like it's embarrassing to admit, but I'm kind of wired like a child. So I tend to respond to situations the way a child might. And I've had to really learn to be an adult around that, (laughs) Um, good or bad. I I understand how children feel often in situations. And so the work that I continue to do is about if I can write to that place within me, then I feel I can effectively reach, you know, a lot of children where they're struggling or what excites or encourages them. So it's kind of an interesting gift. I I think it was Kate DiCamillo said that same thing. She thinks and responds like she feels it's like a child. And so, like I said, it's kind of interesting to navigate as a functional adult, but you learn that path and then you realize what a gift it is to really honestly respond to certain situations the way a child would. So that's the place that I use to write. Wow. So you've written six books a six book series, sorry, about a young girl named Frida B. Tell us about who Frida B is and what are some of the resonant messages that um, we can learn from her. Um, so Frida B is an eight-year-old girl with wild hair and freckles and rarely wears shoes. She loves bare feet. Um, the series itself is written in a very strict rhythm and rhyme to be extremely engaging and to help very, very young children feel successful as readers. But she's really, she's kind of a modern-day Pippi Longstocking. That's the only way I can think of to With describe her. <laughs> yeah, and she really is, she's a free spirit. Um, and she's not so much a girl, girl, girl. She's a child. So sometimes people actually ask me, are you thinking about writing stories for boys? And I say, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> these, um, you know, these really are books for children. And I was very drawn to Pippi as a child, with the exception I never liked that she didn't have any adults around her, you know, regularly. That always made me feel off. So I kind of feel like this is almost a manifestation of what I wanted Pippi to be. But, you know, the moxie, the adventure, the the foibles, like she's she's really, she's prone to be impulsive. She's prone to get caught up in her imagination and therefore kind of, you know, catch herself on the back end doing something that now she has to correct. And then there's this really lovely counterbalance of her dog, Zilla, that I have to give almost full credit to the illustrator, Michael Chesworth, for developing him because it's only through pictures. But he has this sensitivity. When everything's going well with Frida, everything's going well with Zilla. When something has gone wrong with Frida, Zilla tends to exhibit the sensibilities of what needs to happen next and is usually either partnering with her or kind of nudging her in the right direction. And so for that reason, you know, you've got Frida, who's the dreamer, the impulsive one, the creative one, and then you have Zilla, who is this um, 
He's got this persona of truly being a loyal friend and having this sense of sensibility and problem solving and moving forward. So the two, I think, really attract are attractive to children because they're exhibiting those two strong personalities and both bring comfort in their own way. Well, and it tends to balance each other out. Yeah. The way right. they work together. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you've said that conflict is important. Define mm. conflict for us and explain how we can and should be teaching children about conflict and why this is important. This has become really a strong platform for me in the last year, and I'll just tell you a very brief story why a very, very dear family member in the last couple of years went through a very difficult challenge with his heart, and we knew it was terminal. So it was, it was my brother-in-law. We're very, very close to him, and over those 18 months, he was in the hospital almost, well, definitely a majority of the time, but, you know, just really struggled with all the things we take for granted, right? So walking and talking and eating what you like and being able to breathe well. And and yet the most amazing thing to me is he exhibited such strength of character. Everybody, everybody wanted to take care of Tom. The whole nursing staff wanted to take care of Tom. I got Tom today. Mm-hmm. He would make everyone laugh. He He would say, so what happened with this or what happened with that or constantly putting it back on someone else, never taking any attention for himself. I remember someone would say, you know, Tom, are you feeling dizzy today? And he'd say, no, are you? (laughs) (laughs) It was this sense of light and strength and that contrasted with what he was going through. It made me really observe. And I thought, wow, how much I love and admire this man and yet he's in this, what most of us would say is a terrible place, right? So finally, at one point, I, I said to him, I said, I need to know, and forgive me if this is an inappropriate question, I need to know, how are you doing this? And he was at Gaylord at the time, and he said, I want you to go down to the main rehab room where they take me. He goes, I want you to look up on the wall, you're going to find a quote by C.S. Lewis. I want you to go find that quote. And so I went down and I looked, and there on the wall it said, Hardship often prepares ordinary people for extraordinary destinies. And that coming from the author of, you know, The Chronicles of Narnia and how many other just epic pieces of fiction. And so I had a conversation with him, and he, he and my sister both basically came around and said, What we've learned is conflict is the point. Conflict is the point of life. It's going to happen. It's not the big bad thing that happens. It's going to happen. It's how we respond to mm-hmm. it that determines whether it's bad or not. But we don't get courage on an easy day. We don't become brave on an easy day. We don't become patient or empathetic or honest or hopeful or all of those things when we look at a hero and we define a hero. All of those characteristics are developed on difficult days or during difficult challenges. So as educators and parents, when we're working with youth, what I've found to be instrumental is when we're working with a child who is in conflict, instead of painting a picture for that child that validates that this is a bad thing, we seek the personal characteristics within the child that indicate the strength that child has to overcome the conflict. So is that child courageous? Does that child have potential to be empathetic or hopeful? or perseverant and calling that characteristic or those characteristics out of the child authentically, it's actually conflict then becomes a building block 
towards building a strong, um, resilient life. Exactly. And that goes along with your whole idea of the whole child. You've developed a toolkit for you to be the whole child toolkit for teachers. So tell us about the whole child approach. Describe what you mean by that. The whole child approach is one that I have learned and it resonates with me, as I said earlier, because it looks at a child not just academically, it also looks at four other spheres of influence within the child. So you've got intellectual, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. And so the whole child approach is looking at all five of those elements within any child and getting to know the child in such a way that you can start to discern where that child shows up. So as I said, I wouldn't have shown up strong necessarily in the academic or intellectual realm, but anyone who knew me and was authentically encouraging me as a child was doing so within the realm of social emotional. So the more that we can attempt to understand the child, to give the child tools for expressing who he or she is uniquely free to be, we start understanding the child's gifts, the child's interests, and where he or she most shows up in those five areas. So in the toolkit, you've put a lot of uh, resources for teachers that they can use, not just for social emotional learning, but Mm -hmm. also for English language acquisition. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what those resources would be? Yeah, I mean, so this is the interesting thing. We call it a toolkit because we don't consider it a program. What we want is for it to be a toolkit to really enhance or complement whatever SEL program the school is utilizing. But what's so beautiful, and I didn't know this, it was an educator who brought it to my attention, social-emotional learning so parallels English language arts. If you want to boil it down really simply, there's five elements to being a good storyteller. You've got plot, character, setting, conflict, and resolution. When you look at developing the character within a child, what what is your plot? What is your story? What is your setting? What are your circumstances? What's going on around you? What are your, who are you as a character? What are your characteristics? How would you like to develop your characteristics? Who would you like to be? Conflict, what are you facing? Resolution, how are you dealing with it? So the way to look at that, as far as I'm concerned, is to understand that the two complement each other very well. So you can actually be paralleling English language arts and hitting um, objectives within an English language arts curriculum and right on top of that be addressing the exact same objectives in social-emotional, but really getting two lessons out of one. Excellent, and that's what we need because we don't have enough time in the day to do everything that we need to do, right ladies? Exactly. (laughs) So so I'm gonna turn this over to Amy and Andrea because both of you are very involved with social-emotional learning at your schools. Share with us a brief description about your school, just a little bit about the demographics, what what your school's like, and any of the social-emotional learning training that you've had with either yourselves or with your faculty? So my school is about 260 students. Uh, We're comprised of 20% of special education, uh, 14% of English language learners, and 52% free and reduced. And when you look at those demographics, we're finding lately that students are coming in struggling more, as Renata was saying, that conflict, coping and just being able to figure out who they are and how they fit into a classroom. So I think in the last few years within education, we're just seeing that trend shift a little bit more, that the students need a little bit more um, more support socially and emotionally, whether it's uh, factors from a lot of social media, uh, parents working, just the pressures in general, 
when I grew up, things were very different. So when we're looking at that makeup of a child and how we are supporting them in those earlier years, this is just a passion of my own of really making sure that children feel safe where they are, that they build that confidence and self-esteem and self-awareness. I think that's critical in developing any child before you can even reach academics. So that's kind of how I found this pocket. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Renata really over the past nine to ten years um, as she's developed the books through the series, um, through after-school programs I developed, and now bringing it into our school and really it just entwines very nicely with our positive uh, behaviors, uh, the PBIS that we do in school, um, and just launching a lot with mindfulness, as I know Andrea has done also, and really that gratitude where kids can start to see, you know, when their com- children compare themselves a lot to one another, I think that's the, one of the negatives coming off of social media, and when they start to compare, they have self-doubt, and then they start to look at themselves in a more negative light. And when we look through gratitude and looking at the whole child and you know having that perseverance, and we look at habits of the mind with empathy, kids can see, wow, I can do this. And you know that's where, um, for us, where we are right now within our school and making sure that kids know that they are important, that they have that story to share, and that we just want to really keep developing that, enhancing that for them. I have a very similar population that Amy has in her school. So one of my biggest things I've always said is, you know, yes, we're, we're educators and academics is obviously very important, but before you can even sometimes ac- access academics, you really need to look at what children's emotional, behavioral, social states are because sometimes they're not ready to access academics or even start to learn until they're, until they're more developed in other areas. It's also a sense of having them be able to belong to somewhere, having them feel important and create their own unique selves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times for them, school is their safety place. School is their comfort zone. And, you know, I fully believe it. I know as well as Amy does that we have to create a lot of stability and we have to help empower children and also make sure that we're meeting their social needs and and letting them know that there is something important inside of Mm -hmm. them to help them cope with conflict and, and how that conflict does make you a stronger person and actually helps mold you to become the person that you are destined to be. I think patience and stamina too are kind of developed within uh, this whole concept too of social emotional. Kids have to learn that, you know, the, uh, they want things immediately and it's mm-hmm. developing that patience, taking turns, stuff that, you know, a lot of concepts that have been taught in preschool, but it really is transcending through some of those earlier grade levels. That whole idea of executive functioning. So absolutely, mm-hmm. yep, that's so important. So you talked a lot just in in the last couple of minutes of I I could probably list a whole array of different character traits that you were talking about through social emotional learning at your schools. So what are some of your favorite activities that you've done, or some of the benefits that you've seen from the activities that you've been doing in your schools? So you know I. I'm very passionate about making sure that families are involved when we're doing any type of developing a child because, again, it's the parents are the ones in charge of their children. Uh, that's the bottom line. They have the, uh, the be-all and end-all. But So by doing different family nights, I think it's uh, important to get parents involved so they understand what we're doing in school and what we're sharing and just what our, our mission is and our beliefs core beliefs of our school. So we've done gratitude nights. We do our international night where, again, where kids are being highlighted, you know, with our gratitude night of, you know, what matters to them, what they see is important, what they're grateful for, and letting parents understand 
kind of where we're going in that direction. We've also done a lot within our classrooms, our community circles every morning, and that's kind of how this year we're really focusing a lot on every classroom developing as teams. So they have responsive classroom is one similar way. We're doing this through Ruler, through the Yale Emotional Institute. And it's conversations within classrooms of posing questions. How are you feeling? And kind of addressing that. And maybe there was an issue yesterday in the classroom and a student might have addressed it in more of a negative state versus a more positive way. And having that, that discussion where kids then can support one another. And that whole restorative practice piece. Exactly. And then this year we've, we've created a cozy cove in our building where kids can kind of have a little bit of an escape, a little more of that mindfulness. It could be practicing yoga in there. It could be coloring some of the um, mandalas, coloring that kids can just kind of have a little bit of break when they're kind of hitting that frustration level too. And then we're able to have a conversation with some support staff of, okay, let's talk about what we just did, but kind of bringing them down and giving them that, as Andrew was saying, that safe place that they can be. And we do a lot of the same similar stuff too. We've done this year a mindfulness family night where we've brought parents in and kids in and we've had, you know, yoga sessions. We've done calming rooms. We've brought uh, several books, including some of Renata's books for parents to see and just giving parents and the kids those toolkits of what are different breathing techniques, what are different calming techniques. How can you also be grateful and and show gratitude? We do a lot of uh, showing gratitude also. Um, I'm a firm believer in how you set the tone of your, you know, your first impression is how the tone of your day is set. So we instituted the last year and continues this year, we have morning greeters every morning. So students are at the front door greeting students, adults, whether it's high-fiving, fist pumping, just saying good morning, just a smile, and just kind of setting that welcoming tone as we walk in. And then also just recognizing you know what students do that could seem like everyday activities or what's a normal thing but just kind of bring it back out to the forefront like you know we call them make my day awards where students just get recognized for doing the right thing and just you know being empathetic or persevering or even being a risk taker during a really tough math lesson and just really kind of praising that and really just trying to give them that comfort to be that risk taker and to maybe kind of force some conflict sometimes so they have to learn how to resolve it and persevere. So you've talked a little bit just now, Andrea, about how you've used the Free to Be books. Are your teachers using those? Are there any special themes that you find really helpful um, through the books or any different activities that kids can connect with from what the characters are doing? Absolutely. I said first and foremost, I mean, we already talked about that English language connection, the ELA connection. I mean, any lesson you go to teach on character traits, immediately you can just automatically embed any free-to-be book within that to look at her character traits. My teachers embrace it. I know Amy's do as well. They love the lessons. They use it a lot of times in the beginning of the year to set tone. They also use it throughout the year where they're noticing maybe one day in class, you know, they had kids with a conflict or some sort of issue, so they bring a book in and use that as part of their read-aloud. Myself, personally, the end of last year, I always at our fourth grade step up ceremony because they're leaving us to move on to a new school. I always read a book to them. And last year's book, which will again be this year, is Free to Be Herself. Just because it has such a resounding message to students that I just think it's just a great way and teachers see it. It's not an add-on, it's a supplement. And it's a resource that really helps teachers address social emotional learning needs in the realm of the academic comfort, which sometimes they feel more comfortable in. And students relate to it. They love the books, they love the characters. And they love all the activities that go with that toolkit and the lessons. And they must love the pictures, too, because oh, the pictures absolutely. are awesome. The pictures are wonderful. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what Renato was saying, that it's a toolkit. 
And I think as educators, there really isn't one program to, you know, to encompass a whole social emotional learning. It really are the resources that you're going to be using because um, every school demographic is different and what's going on in your school, what trauma might have been affecting a school, a classroom, whatever. So I think it's about the resources. Our school jumped in and kind of approached a little bit different. We, we've assigned a book per grade level, not to say that they can't use all the books every grade, but there's one lesson that is sacred to that one grade so they don't, they don't touch upon it. So by the time they've gone through our K to four school, they've experienced every one of Free to Be's adventures and the different conflicts that she's experienced. Excellent. So we've talked a lot about using your books as social emotional learning, but I think another piece of what you do is that whole idea of telling your own unique story and helping people of all ages be able to explore and discover their own story. And one of the things that you've said, and I'm going to quote you, is when you awaken the story within the child, it not only does the child a world of good, it does a world of good for the world. I love that quote. What do you mean by that statement and how can a school use this concept of story to make the world and their school a better place? I will go back to what Andrea said about oftentimes the school is a child's safe place. And for me when I was starting to, we worked on for two years writing and piloting this curriculum. So really understanding the appropriate way to approach it. One of the things that became so clear to me was that a school is its own community. And within that, there are opportunities afforded that maybe aren't afforded to any given child outside of the school because everyone comes from different places, but we all come to the same school. So the idea of story is, for me, it's, it's a common denominator. You know, there is not anyone who walks in those doors who does not have a story. Story is just that kind of... It, it evens the scales. You have a story, I have a story, she has a story, he has a story, and parents have stories, and staff members have stories. And so even what I thought was beautiful is when we started looking at the objectives a school has really throughout the year for communicating, there's communication among administrators, there's a communication with staff, there's communication with the students, and there's communication with families, and then the outlying community. The interesting thing about story is that it applies to everybody. And so I find it to be extremely relevant whether I come in to work with a group of kindergartners or two weeks ago I did um, an artist in residence in a middle school or I'm doing a family night. I feel I can show up and be entirely authentic with any audience when I say you have an amazing one-of-a-kind never-before-told story within you. And I think in that way it creates a culture of everyone matters there's this place for everyone. Really, there is no competition because your story is not competing with mine. If anything, our stories make each other better. And then that moves from autonomy. Autonomy is making sure the child understands he or she does have an individual worth, right? A unique individual worth. There's something in this world only you can do the way only you can do it. So there's no competition there. But then, Rosie, your story would make my story, and my story would make Amy's story better, and Amy's story would make Andrea's story better, and the four of us together would tell a story that's way better than any one of us could alone. And so when you're talking about creating a safe place, what feels safer than a place that knows your name when you walk in the door, that says, oh, I know you, I know you, and you're going to do great things because you're going to focus on these things that we know you're good at. But at the same time, we've got your back and we're here to support each other. And if you're struggling, ask the person next to you to help you. So you're creating this model of belief, I matter, 
belonging, we're all in this together. Who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to be a part of that? And one of the quotes that we developed early on with the curriculum was purpose before performance, what Amy was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. Life and learning matter to a child when a child believes she matters. If a child doesn't believe she matters, if she doesn't believe she belongs, teaching that child is extremely difficult. But the time that you invest in seeing her, knowing her, building her up, building a community around her that's safe, that child suddenly can accelerate into learning at a much faster degree because she sees she has a reason to do so. So that's really the idea of story being that common denominator. So it's not just children, it's all of us. Each of us wants to believe that we matter and each of us wants to belong. And so I just find that within a school setting, it's powerful because it's true and it can apply to every single person in the building. You just mentioned that you go out and do residencies in middle schools. And I know through your story wiring, you work with students of all ages. How do you envision people using the picture books, the free-to-be books, with older students or adults? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, really, how many of us don't love picking up a picture book still? I love it. I love it. It's right. my, my favorite Any part of the bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. And the reason being, you can first of all ingest it in 15 minutes an entire story with pictures. So that alone is delightful. But what I find when I'm working with older youth, teens, even adults, is then there's all this breathing room. There's a ton of breathing room. What does that story mean to you? What does that story mean to you? How about you? Why do you think Frida did that? How would you have done it differently in her situation? What do you think she's feeling right now? So suddenly when you start thinking about a picture book in that application, it becomes an incredibly powerful tool because it's not a boom, 300 page book that we're all gonna, you know, it's this big tome that we're all gonna kind of rifle through and, you know, really digest. It is, nope, we're gonna read through this thing in 15 minutes and then we're gonna talk about it. And you're gonna tell me how you interpret it based on how you feel and how do you, it becomes, English language arts, you're talking story, you're talking plot, character setting, conflict resolution. You're also talking people. How did that story impact you? And the way it impacts one person is so different from how it impacts another person. So for me, the picture book sets the stage for discussion. Really, truly, and it's funny because we do, we have a, a book club at the Story Barn for ages 21 and up. And that's what we do. We read a picture book for 10, 15 minutes and we spend the rest of the hour and a half talking about how each of us interprets it, either for ourselves or our children or our students, but it becomes this open platform. And so I do think that's why picture books are timeless, is because they just never fail to prompt some honest conversation and reflection. Absolutely, and I'm glad you mentioned the Story Barn because um, it's an awesome place. Like, I Thank had the you. opportunity to go up and visit, and I was just in awe. I hope that all of our listeners will find their way to Summers and visit you up there. But tell us about the Story Barn, the purpose behind it, the activities, your vision for the Story Barn going forward. So the Story Barn has been a dream that my business partner, Paula LaJoy, and I have had really for 10 years, but it was up until recently, it was the dream was the story house. The reason we had this dream is when we do the work that we do, we're always going somewhere. And when you're going to a school or when you're going to a business, you're oftentimes in a much more sterile environment, for lack of a better word. So you're in a cafetorium or you're in a boardroom. And we can do 
our work there very easily, but it's not the full effect of bringing someone out to a barn on seven acres of land in the middle of nowhere where phones get checked at the door and candles are burning and there's light music playing in the background and there's coffee brewing and there's blankets and it's a sense of for that period of time you're checked out of the rest of your life and you are completely invited to focus on whatever we're focusing on at that point in time. And totally comfortable. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> the smell of the coffee, like I can still remember early in the morning, I drove up there and still, yeah, it's, it's just totally comfortable. Thank you. It's still quite new for us. We opened in August and we're definitely doing the whole trial and error, figuring out what parents and families and teachers are really wanting based on what we're able to offer. But we're starting to feel this traction for what works and what doesn't. So I'm excited to see how things continue to develop and grow as we move forward. What are some of the plans that you have for the Story Barn? Just in general, like I know you Mm -hmm. do administrator retreats, teacher professional development, you bring kids in, teachers could bring their class for a field trip. Yeah, Um, within the realm of education, we've got a bunch of different realms. There's, you know, there's the family realm, which you can imagine is a lot of different activities for all ages within, you know, a family or community. And then we have the business realm, which is where we're starting to do team building, the idea that every business has a story. So working with the people within the business, we do that. But within the realm of education, we are still really strongly focused on what we've always done, but now we have a beautiful space in which to do it, and that is administrator retreats, which Amy has been, and Rosie, you have been mm-hmm. to that, where really it's just we invite you in, and, and for a couple of hours we help you understand what it is that we offer and start to brainstorm with you along the lines of how we could help you in your school with your demographic So there's that. We also do professional development, which is really bringing those lessons. There's a lesson for each of the six books, as well as videos and all kinds of hands-on activities. So for schools that are interested in really that hands-on, how does this work, I want to see it play out, we do professional development at the barn where educators can come and learn one or more of the lessons live in the way that we present it. And then yes, we also do at the barn, specifically we do field trips for small groups. It's not a large barn, it's a horse barn. (laughs) But we have seven acres, and then we have a large workshop that can hold up to between 30 and 35 people. So the field trips can be where one group is in, one group is out, and we're switching. But that's a much more intimate experience than my coming to a school and doing an author visit and large assemblies and that kind of thing. So we certainly have lots to choose from, but the barn allows us to expand on what we've been offering in a really personal way. So if people are listening and wanted to get more information about what you do at the Story Barn or if they wanted to have an author visit with you, which is awesome, I have to say, because you're right here in Connecticut, so you're, mm-hmm. you're close by for students. How can they get in contact with you? Can they get on a mailing list or what do you have available? Absolutely. So if you remember the name Frida B, it's a good place to start. It's Frida spelled like friend. So it's F-R-I-E-D-A-B. If you can remember that, you can find us at freetobe.com. And you also can email us at info at freetobe.com. And then our direct phone number is 860-763-0330. 
And of course, we also have presences on social media. So there's a lot of ways to find us and find what we're doing. I always just suggest look at freetobe.com to start. On the homepage, you're going to find the curriculum, you're going to find the story barn, you're going to find author visits, you're going to find the books right off the homepage. So that's usually the easiest place to start. Great. Thank you. And Amy and Andrea, I, I know our listeners may want to contact you to find out how you're using the, either the free-to-be books or some of the activities and things that you're doing for social-emotional learning, etc. So how do they find you? Well, you could reach me. My email is adiuto, so it's A-D-A-I-U-T-O, at sheltonpublicschools.org. And that's a great way to reach me, and then I could always connect you with other information. Amy, and again, it being Shelton, so it's A Yost, so it's A Y O S T at Shelton Public Schools with an S dot org. Also, my cell phone is 203 525 1756. Another easy way just to reach out that way, too. Be more than happy to share our experiences with the Free to Be Toolkit and what we've been doing in our school. Excellent. Or even go to the Shelton website Web sh- and yes. just look up their schools, yeah, <laughs> which, absolutely. Is, which is what I do sometimes because you guys have some great pictures and great resources of things that you're doing on your websites as well. Great. I'm going to end with one last question, Renata, just because it's one that I always think is fun for our authors to know, at least our listeners, to know what our authors are thinking and dreaming about, especially in relation to the books that you're writing. Tell us about what you're thinking and dreaming about right now and any projects that you're currently working on. Thank you. It's interesting. We released our sixth book in February of 2019 and then opened the barn, which kind of threw off my publishing schedule a little bit. So as I'm moving forward, I actually am considering a seventh book, but there are a couple of other projects that I'm considering as well, and I'm trying to gain discernment as which one I'm going to pick. One would be a book for teens called Free to be Resilient, which again really builds on that whole discussion and exploration of conflict and how conflict actually makes us the heroes we want to be. So that's one I'm definitely interested in speaking and presenting on that, whether or not I actually, in the near future, author something on that. Not sure yet. And then the other option is actually a collection of stories that I've written over the years that are much more kind of like Shel Silverstein. I'm doing a lot of readings now at the barn and I'm finding that those kinds of shorter, really spunky, kind of funny, wacky stories. The ones that you wrote to your friend way back then? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That they kind of gain a new appreciation. Sometimes kids just want something really fun and punchy. And so the idea behind that is that if we move forward with that, we're actually going to ask kids to illustrate them. So instead of having Michael Chesworth illustrate them, we actually would do kind of an open call, probably via social media, where we just post one of them at a time and ask kids to send us their artwork and then we would collect the artwork and publish, which I love because I love being able to showcase the work that children are able to do within mm-hmm. our own work. So that would be probably something more along the lines of, you know, free to be silly would be the title. <laughs> cool. I, I, I think that sounds great. <laughs> and I, how fun to have the kids illustrating. Yeah. I, I know when I was at the Story Bar and there was another principal that was there and she was talking about how, and she's a principal in Summers, and she was talking about you would go and read some of your early works in each of the books to her students and they would give you ideas and you would get ideas from them. So mm-hmm. um, what a great idea to put that out. I can't wait to see something like that. Okay, well, based well, on that, that was great, great. I know where we're heading. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked all your ideas. So. <laughs> 
So, no, I, I just think that would be fun to, to see what, what the kids could do with the, the funny, silly stories that you've been writing. So Thank you. Look forward to seeing some of those projects. Again, I'd like to thank Renata Bowers, author of the award-winning Free to Be series, for being here at CAST today talking with us, so thank you. It's clear that you have a passion for writing and for helping everyone discover and share their unique stories. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank Shelton School District Principals Amy and Andrea for joining us for this edition of our CAST Conversation podcast. The work that you're both doing is so important and your schools sound amazing. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. All three of you have given us so much to think about today. I hope that our listeners will take time not only to discover and explore their own stories, but will find ways to help everyone they work with use their stories to make the world a better place. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAST Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.